Thanks to my uh, colleagues here, industry panelists. Uh, you've been a big part of uh, what makes the Health Tech Challenge successful. Uh, you've been, uh, many of you have been all over the world to, uh, to, to partake in seeing uh, you know, hundreds of these startups. And um, you know, it's great to see the innovation in those startups, but what's much harder, of course, is when you go back to your companies, is to make innovation work at your company. Because, of course, you're not in a greenfield spot, you're in a brownfield spot, and you have the challenge of making digital health, digital and technology come alive in an innovative way in a corporation. Quite a different challenge. It's not about finding uh, investment, it's about finding budget. It's not about finding talent, it's about co-opting people in the organization. And, and I want to get it to the bottom of that with you a little bit today. I'm going to start off with, uh, with, with Wanho. I think Wanho, from a Bristol-Myers Squibb perspective, you know, and you know, talk broadly, don't feel the need to speak about BMS, because uh, we know uh, you guys have been busy uh, just over the holidays. Uh, just a little bit busy. <laughs> Congratulations, nice deal. Um, the, uh, you know, you've done a lot of experiments, a lot of digital health experiments, but really the challenge is, out of those experiments, the successes, how, how do you scale those? Maybe you could talk about how you scale innovation. I think that's one of the things that, that fascinates me about making innovation successful for a corporation. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. So I said, thank you, Stuart. Um, yes, we were very busy during this Christmas period. Um, the topic of escalating innovation is a, is a complex one. What we do at BMS is we stay true of what it is our mission, which is simply to discover medicines, develop them, and then deliver them to patients. So by doing that, we stay very true on what are we doing and what are we not doing. So we choose very selectively, we choose investments that helps us either to advance science or add data to our decisions or, or deploy technology or do it all together so that we can either discover the, patient, the more molecules or develop them faster or change the way that we interact with our customers, either they are HCPs, payers, or patients. To do that, uh, we also choose and. I would say that's even more important, we, we choose not to do a lot of things. So we basically are working on three very specific areas where we have massive investment and we choose not to do other things. Like for instance, uh, we tend to get pulled over all the time to do things around blockchain. We, we choose not to do anything on blockchain and we are very specific about that. Uh, however, in other areas, we, we do have massive investment. And this massive investment is jointly um, decided, IT, uh, research, marketing, uh, with a lot of collaboration and very strict governance. Just, just as you think about scaling innovation, you, mm -hmm. you think about you sit down and you sit down with, you know, in the commercial role and you say, yeah. hey, I could, add a three, I could add three more people to a territory to go drive right. Opdivo yeah. sales. Or I could I could spend you know three hundred thousand nine hundred thousand on a on a on a on a on a trying to scale a startup. How do you make those trade offs? Because because I get the feeling that every day the old gets up and tries to yeah. to squash the new. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you know the leading cause of the death of baby pandas. Yeah, I think you've you've heard me say this before. It's yeah. mummy pandas because they sit yeah. on them because they don't realise they're there. And I think this is how old crushes the new every day. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you could yeah. tell me about how you right. make I I sure baby pandas are safe. What we do at BMS is very we are very disciplined and you know that. Uh, we are extremely disciplined on what we are pursuing and we work together in making that those decisions. So once we have made a decision, we, we go and execute and we are extremely disciplined on the execution. So and we do not allow things to deviate us 
from until we get the actual result and the learnings out of that. If things don't go well, we fail fast and move on. But we are very, very dis disciplined through collaboration and joint decision. Perfect. That's a great one. Amy, maybe just switching gears a little bit. You know, one of the things that I think is is hard is you can innovate in a vacuum. You can do stuff. You can run projects. But in actual fact, making sure it connects really closely with the business is something I think you know you've done really well in in, the, in your role at GSK. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you've got innovation happening really close to the business and the brands in a way that's making an impact in the business. Maybe not at the scale where it's having a P&L impact in the short term, but you can see your line of sight to making a complete difference in terms of the way GSK runs its business. Which I think you know, as uh, you know, I listened to Emma, the you know, talk about uh, GSK this morning. Very exciting. You must be you know enjoying being part of that. that revolution at uh, GSK. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of change happening at GSK, and I'm in their consumer health care division. So um, what we're trying to do when I came into the job now about 15 months ago, it was clear to a few of us that we weren't doing enough of kind of structure around innovation, right? And so we really looked at what do we want to do, spin up a separate unit and have it far away from the business and kind of isolated. But That's kind of the established operate. logic, isn't it? Keep it away yeah. Yeah. so that it well, can thrive we to, we, yeah, so we don't get squashed. Operate. Yeah, or did we want to keep it closer so that there'd be less kind of autoimmune uh, response of trying to spit it out, right, when it got um, developed? And I think based off of some scars each of us had uh, from our past lessons, we decided to keep it yeah, no. close, but to ring fence the money in such a way that the unit has decisions and they don't always have to go right to the, the day in, day out category elements or category structure. Um, the, I think the really important thing we did is we decided that no one group would own innovation. It would be co-owned by our head of R&D, uh, me as the CIO for the, the business unit, and our, our chief digital officer. So the three of us really run that unit as a three-headed monster, as we say, or the three, you know. It's not a monster, um, Amy. Yeah, it's not a monster. monster. Yeah, not a monster. It feels like a monster some <laughs> days. So, you know, I think by having those elements and close enough to the business with the right leadership doesn't mean that it's, you know, not without its issues, but we have been able to more rapidly bring concepts through and then we always have the, con the concept that we will have a lead market who is bought in. And if we don't, after we get to kind of a point in the innovation cycle, we'll, we'll kick it out. Because we so you have scale to be when able you've got someone who's going to pull. We have to be able to test it somewhere, right? And I mean, we can't test it just in a vacuum. So that's how we've gone after innovation. I mean, we have some pretty significantly different things that we're pulling through that will come into our pipeline with P&L impacts in 19 and 20 um, in the connected device space and, you know, things that are directly sold to the consumer. Where's the space in, in, in that model for kind of entrepreneurship? How do you fit that in? Because, I, you know, I was, I was talking to the CEO of a, another company uh, on the weekend and they were talking about how they, they had to have some entrepreneurial spirit in there to make stuff happen but they, and they need to provide protection around it and then how they, they help those entrepreneurs find their ways in corporations which can be quite the, the opposite kind of uh, place for uh, someone to thrive in that entrepreneurship role. Yeah, so I think, you know, probably our head of the Digital Innovation Lab, who you know quite yep. well, he, we actually stole them from Accenture. Um, you know, I think he would tell you that some days he wants to bang his head against the wall, right? Because, and he had done some startup things and others before that. And he has to learn how to live in a big company. And that brings with it, you know, certain um, challenges, I guess. But in general, what we try to do is we really try to give 
the space and we try to follow you know, design thinking and other methodology to really be able to show that, that value. And in every case, what we're building right now, we're doing with a startup company, either licensing something or purchasing, right? So we're not starting necessarily from scratch. We're taking an area we're interested in and finding the best tech and the best kind of way of doing it and bringing it together through an acquisition or something else. So those startups provide you some of that entrepreneurship into, into yeah. GSK, the, the kind of the, the spark that changes things. That's yeah. fair to say? I mean, yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I'd like to switch the conversation a little bit because, of course, what you've talked a little bit there about is operating model and how the operating model changes. And, and Addison, I wanted to kind of put you on the spot. Um, from an operating model perspective, how do, you, how do you change your operating model so that you can bring startups in and make a difference? And in that context, how do you use the operating model to advance the cause of innovation in, in a corporation, in a world where you know, things move a little bit slower than they do here in the valley? Right, so again, um, this space that you all are in is fantastic, you know, from the standpoint, it doesn't probably feel like that every day because, you know, you're trying to sell, you're trying to pitch, you're trying to get somebody to listen to you, trying to understand what you've got going on, but sometimes also inside of this, uh, you know, large organization, the mothership, you know, there's, uh, I would call it uh, a natural uh, uh, inclination to kind of deprioritize and kind of and, and push off things that don't seem like they're ready for action. So let me tell a quick story um, in this. I remember um, when uh, probably about four years ago or so, um, I went into our uh, CEO at the time's office and we were in the midst of the Affordable Care Act activity, maybe four or five years ago. And, you know, I, I pitched at that point, I said, you know, when we get done with solving, you know, all of these things that are costing us, you know, investment uh, focus at this point in time, we're going to need a, a system, a platform to kind of uh, ha help us leap forward because we've been focusing our energy on creating a new line, two lines of business at the same time with the existing line of business that we had and uh, creating more scale and capacity. And, so um, I remember looking at her, and that meeting was supposed to go for 30 minutes. It went for 45. At the end of it, she, she, didn't, she didn't wear her uh, feelings on her face very much, but I was definitely in the process of updating my resume on the way out because I <laughs> felt like I had told her that, you know, the holy grail of focusing on kind of the operational priority was not where innovation should be focused. And so, of course, I felt a little uncomfortable about my departure. Uh, roll the clock forward 20, well, 12 hours later, um, I get an email from her that basically says, hey, thank you so much for challenging my perspective. You're absolutely right. We need to start somewhere. And, you know, your ideas around stimulating uh, the spaces that we actually have opportunities to influence at this point in time, doing things a little differently than we maybe have traditionally done is, is spot on. So you got to remember that the, let's call it the operating system for the mothership and the operating system for the innovation platform, they operate at different speeds. And you're going to have to figure out how to bring those two, uh, you know, gears or whatnot together. You know, there's this kind of white space that sits in between there because there are things that are constantly being prioritized and you try to typically inject incremental uh, innovation but that only moves you so far so fast. And so a lot of times you have to kind of figure out how to strategically identify 
domains or areas of opportunity, like we were just talking about, that you invest that are kind of tied to your strategic mission and vision, but you have some freedom to run. And so that's what we've been able to do, uh, specifically as of late, we're going back, you know, when we first started having the conversation, we didn't really have a quote unquote formal innovation model to today where we've got, you know, uh, two, two major platforms, you know, a lab that actually co-creates with our clients. Um, we have a uh, employee driven uh, innovation and idea incubator that uh, actually has put uh, two new things in the pipeline for into the marketplace, you know, in 19, which is really exciting. You know, actually, one thing got there faster than we had planned. So, you know, looking at, at, you know, how to then position this from a priority perspective along with the rest of the things that are already earmarked for investment is, is kind of key. And then uh, also then having kind of a, a leadership team that also invests itself around uh, acknowledging, supporting, sponsoring, um, and actually challenging themselves because also, you know, remember they are held to the, the metal of, uh, you know, operating and delivering on the P&L for their specific areas of responsibility. And so here come these innovation guys that are going to be a little disruptive and not necessarily have a guarantee. They may have some um, you know, some uh, leading uh, informatics around what the potential could be, but not necessarily things that are kind of close to the, the metal of the individuals who have these responsibilities. So you get them to start sponsoring these things, and then you actually start to see, as one or two of these things start to evolve, their, the courage starting to come up. And so the culture of the organization then starts to change slowly, and that operating system that I kind of talked about, they start to get more in sync now with each other, and then they actually start looking into, hey, those innovation guys, they actually were able to do this X, Y, and Z thing before. Can we tap on them to kind of bring them into the front end of these new project cycles that we have? Got it. So. Let, me, let me test you a little bit, because, because one of the things I want to ask you about is innovation is what? It's risky, isn't it? Yeah, very. So when you take innovation and you take risk, there are times when it's successful. Right. And there are times where it's unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that moment when it's unsuccessful, and they go, those innovation guys screwed it up, hmm. in corporations, normally failure and firing are two things that go quite close together. Sometimes days apart, sometimes maybe tacitly might take a few weeks or a month to find out you've been fired, but it goes wrong, doesn't it? It goes wrong badly. <laughs> How in your operating model have you created space for, for innovation entrepreneurship, but also allowed for... Uh, actually, there's almost, there's almost a, we need to be failing a certain amount of the time, otherwise we're probably not pushing hard enough. Mm -hmm. how, how have you done that in the operating model? Right, so... And if there's anyone who was fired in the audience for that, feel, you know, feel, feel free to let us know, and maybe, maybe uh, Addison can tell us how to stay safe. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can, uh, we can have an intervention, you know, afterwards <laughs> and kind of talk about that. No, I, I think the thing is you, it, you set up the expectation that, you know, these are... The, the level of investment, first of all, that you commit yourself to, again, depending upon the size and the complexity of the organizations, you know, we've been able to kind of, um, how, how should I say, not de-risk, because you don't necessarily de-risk innovation, but you do look at it from the standpoint of, you know, what can we get out quickly? What can we, you know, you know what hypothesis can we test and validate very quickly and make sure that at least this piece is something that um, we a either learn from, or then we can, you know, f try to force it to failure. So that's really kind of been our, you know, uh, you know, maybe secret sauces, 
we failed a lot of things. We, we've tried to force them to failure, and then some things kind of reincarnate themselves while you're trying to kill them. So that's the other side of it too, where they take on another life, you know, they may take a turn in the process of saying, okay, the success criteria that you defined for this particular capability, um, we're done looking at that, but this other very interesting thing happened. And so then having the organizational tolerance to kind of explore that new path um, actually helped us identify some capabilities that we would not have got on our, our, our runway. So to your point, I think the organization has to, if they're formally embracing innovation, they have to know that they should be failing a lot more than they're actually delivering, you know, yep. because um, you should be doing testing at the level where it is not making significant impact, you know, to the bottom line until, you know, it's actually ready to go to market. So you should have that space so that um, you can actually experiment um, with confidence. And then that also starts to change the culture and evolve. Uh, you know, about what you do as well. Thank you. I, I want to pick up on the concept of failure because, in actual fact, in, in most big pharma and biotech companies, we embrace failure every day. And I want to move to clinical trials and talk a little bit to Nancy about clinical trials. So in the context of, of clinical trials, as we know, from first in man through regulatory, the chances of success are anything between four and eight if you play the averages, you know, 11 to 15 if you start to look at some of the different uh, breakout. But, but essentially, you're lucky if one in 10 of the molecules you take into first in man, make it to the market. Um, and, and we do those clinical trials because scientifically we have to learn. So ironically, here we are in, on one side, you know, anything with digital, we hold to, a, in corporations, we hold to some sort of high standard for, we can't have failure there, but it's juxtaposed, juxtaposed to clinical trials. And the question I really want to ask you, Nancy, is, is if we think about clinical trials, a big part of those is the cost of failure. In phase three, we can spend, you know, anything between half a billion and a billion dollars on a big study. If we talk about Alzheimer's, we're talking about billions of dollars. Even a good 2B, 3A study for oncology, we're in, the, we're in the 50 to $150 million to run those studies. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about how are we going to, using digital, um, in our industry, and I'm not asking you to talk about Gilead, I don't want to you know, talk about your company, but across the industry, how do we get 100x cheaper, 100x faster, 100x higher quality in clinical trials? I set a ridiculous number because, of course, I think that's the kind of level of, of change we're going to have to do in order to change the way we do clinical trials, in order to get to patients to... Uh, medicines to patients faster in a way that, that really has put them in a situation where we know it's going to work for this patient. Maybe you could talk about that. Sure. Um, so I'm going to focus it in on a, a very real-life example. Um, so we, we took a, a look at a particular therapeutic class um, of very, very sick patients. And... So our primary goal, actually, was not around the money. It was around how do we improve the patient experience so that the outcome at the end of the day is going to help this patient's journey achieve the ultimate health outcome. And that's, that's hard because typically we come at clinical trial design from a very scientific perspective. Yep. To come at it from an experience perspective, that probably took some people's heads and, and you press you know, the, the, the button which blows their heads up, isn't it? That, that's quite yep. different. It was, quite, it was a very interesting concept. So what we ended up doing, and see how many people are in this room. So when we said we were going to try to do clinical trial disruption, 
the first meeting had about this many people in the room. Some, regulatory, state, some stakeholders. <laughs> regulatory and quality and compliance. Legal. <laughs> all being in the room. Mm. Well, legal is like, you know, it'll never happen, so they didn't show okay, up. Okay, they didn't show up. <laughs> so the long and short of it is we looked at three priorities. Patient first, time to market, and then cost. And the reason we did that is that why we come to work every day is to save patients' lives. And all of us had been following these patients for so long and making very intimate relationships with them and watching them go through these painful journeys just to go for a treatment visit to get blood pressure, weight, and vitals. These, these, these folks sometimes can't get out of bed for three weeks, physically cannot get out of bed. They would have to actually get a transport for two hour drive just to get these basic vitals. And we said to ourselves, you know, is this the right thing to be doing? And we challenged ourselves and we said no. So what we ended up doing is actually we ran the trial in, in a parallelism, traditional, and it was a 33 uh, treatment protocol, um, which had to go to actually your visit 33 times. And as a very sick person, I mean, geez, when we get a cold, we don't even want to. We don't even want to get out of bed. But these are these are folks, you know, they're they're on their last their last four months of life. So we uh, actually submitted. Uh, a prototype to the FDA about running this in parallel. And the goal was to reduce the 33 treatment regimen by 50%. We still were going to do 33 visits, but we were going to do them virtually. And we were going to do that with disruptive innovation and digital. So half the visits would be done without them having to come into the investigator's office? Yep. Wow. So what, we, so what we ended up doing is, in the protocol, we hardwired that we were going to do this, and we had a control group. So they were going on traditional, equivalent to, I'll call it my digital patients, and they were going to get, you know, 50-50 split of virtual visits. Now, the, the, the virtual visits um, really were, I'll call them the simple visits. It's, it's, it's really those simple little things. Um, with an iPad, a physician can very easily do some visual tests to determine your disease progression. You know, that is not a reason to make someone drive two hours and then wipe them out so bad their white blood counts go down and they can't get out of bed now for the next month because they went to that visit. Well, they have to come in for an infusion. Yeah, and all of these things. So, you know, we were able to take the... E I, I, call, I always like to call them. There's always these little easy wins in, in the, tr the treatment protocol, the 15-minute visits. How do we get those 15-minute visits virtual? So we ended up creating very, very simple digital technology with... Uh, an I, iPad application that the doctor would have this 15-minute meeting, and we would, you know, was it scheduled just like any normal one? It was all scheduled, and, and basically, uh, we supplied the technology to the patients, 
And all of a sudden, you know, the results and the equivalency were the same. And so what we so when you say equivalency, the clinical trial results were it didn't matter whether they came in or not, the basically the data was that you were seeing the similar data. They were they were all the same treatment at this yep. point? Yep. Wow. And then in addition to that, so those are the simple visits. Then we have a little bit more complex visits where we may have to do, like you said, an infusion. We may have to t do blood pressure, things of that nature. So what we did is we put clinical trials on wheels. And we, we uh, loaded up vans and we basically drove to the patient's house and we bring the trial to the patient. And the, the, the amount of, um, like I have goosebumps right now because of the, you know, feeling that the families, the, the, the response that we got about what we were doing for their loved ones. And even if at the end of the day they didn't make it through the full disease progression, we made the whole experience for the family that much easier. And at the end of the day, you know, the FDA has accepted these two, you know, very simple approaches to reducing the impact on that patient and blessed our protocol to move forward. That's fantastic. It's fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded actually by, you know, a whole variety of different things because that's not really about 100x less, but that's about a 100x better experience for the patients. And one of the things we, we always struggle with is, is, uh, is you know, part, clinical trial participation. I guess uh, I'll ask the audience again, I like hands up, is how many people have participated in a clinical trial in this audience? Anybody? One, two, it's a handful, three people. And you consider, you know, uh, one of the challenges we've got is participation. Um, most of us don't participate because, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, not least of that experience. I know, uh, talking about Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, um, you know, one of the, the insights that uh, a client did, they, they identified that when you visit there, when you actually do the visits, often the, the mother is the person who's the carer and they have other children. And so they, they, uh, the, the CRA was taking food for the other kids so they could keep the kids occupied while they had mum involved with the DMD patient. Maybe, like, John, last but not least, we've got, we got a few minutes, three, three and a half minutes. I to like go I'm court. standing between the exciting pitches. And yeah, so uh, this better be exciting. John. Yeah, no, I know, no down. kidding. Don't and I'm following down. that great story. I don't yeah. have a puppy or anything. That's it. <laughs> we'll get you a puppy. I, I mean, <laughs> come on, I need something. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, you know, you've got a wealth of experience here. And, and I guess, you know, if you had three lessons learned, what would those lessons learned be? And, and maybe kind of, if you can, to a certain extent, you know, a little bit of a story around where those lessons came from, John. Yeah, so, um, so my background is so everybody knows, I, I've been a startup entrepreneur uh, eight times, and I've transitioned, unlike our lead-in speaker, from that world of being a serial entrepreneur into being an entrepreneur in residence or being... So you went the other way. Being, I went the other way, and now I'm Perfect. inside a big corporation, and I, and I went first to, to a corporation in another industry, but with the same idea, which is about how do you take um, all these great innovative ideas, whether they're happening internally or externally, they're being brought to you or they're being developed inside, and protect them from the mother panda. Like the, 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 the point of this is that as an entrepreneur who's operating outside, you have all kinds of forces and things that you are up against that are super hard. They're really challenging. Raising money, dealing on the sales cycle, you know, the development cycle, even approval cycles. But when you are inside a corporation, you've got all kinds of other things, budgets, zero-based budgeting. You've got, you know, the fights for turf, the fights for people. I mean, in some organizations today, even, you know, they're not adding new people. So even the idea that you're going to start and separate out a new group of people to do something becomes nearly impossible. 
And I think a couple of the things that, that I've learned, I mean, one is that it's the best of times and the worst of times. If you're an entrepreneur, there are so many, that the sort of siren call of, we better innovate in the healthcare space because the world is changing, that it's being heard. So there's lots of opportunities. People are bringing, you know, we're bringing in, um, and other organizations are bringing in entrepreneurs and startups in record numbers. The problem is, is that if you're, if you're not of the size and scale, or you haven't built a business case with the business, that actually allows us to see how it's going to be a material change in our business. You're going to get a pilot inside our organization, but then you're going to be in Pilot Island. And we have pilot islands, you know, all over the organization where... We love pilot islands. It's fantastic. I mean, every, every, every pilot's successful. They but, all but work. Exactly. Like a hero. They're, they're, always, they're always working great. And because, you know, depending on the budget, it's not very much money or no money at all. And they get to have our logo and wander around and tell everybody about it. So we've now actually got this whole test where we ask people, are you actually generating revenue? Have you grown your business with the other clients? Because Maybe Netflix could run a series called Pilot yeah. Island. It is. It, we call it, I mean, it is Pilot Island. Send them off to Pilot Island. No. That's it. Um, I think the second thing is this idea of um, how you fix it with the business the, and you know the business objectives. Um, so we, you know, we have tried a couple of different things inside of MedStar. We had a couple of. Um, we, we could use telehealth as an initiative that we're, we, we took it into the business early. So, you know, we saw telehealth as a, you know, the future of a big part of our business. And so the, the idea was like, how can we scale this quickly? So we took it right into the business. The problem was, is that if you're running a P&L and now all of a sudden you're having to deal with this idea that the telehealth visit is half the price, maybe it's not reimbursed, how do you schedule it, how do you use it? Like it becomes a huge cost center, not a huge revenue generator. And so suddenly everybody's looking at it in the wrong sort of way. There's no innovation going on around it. There's how do I sit on it and destroy it? So we have this, um, you know, in our innovation center, in our innovation, uh, you know, the Innovation Institute, we've developed these innovation centers. So we have a telehealth innovation center, which is experimenting, actually pulled out of the business. It sits in the innovation center, but it, it co-ops and works together with people across the business to develop business models in telehealth and get them to enough scale with the right technologies that we can then um, put them back into the business. So it's sort of a reverse way of thinking about it. You, you know, you've got to get the, get the right mass behind it. You've got to do it in a sort of walled off way, in a walled off garden, but then you've got to figure out how to, to build it into the business. So you've got to have the business sponsorship and others, but it, it is a much more effective model for us than just starting it too early or on the other hand, just bringing people into Pilot it's Island. Perfect. Either one don't, you know, don't tend to work for us very well. It's perfect, John. I'm going to end it with a quick, yeah. quick fire round that I'm going to ask you all the same question. It's like, so what's your top piece of advice to, to, to the people in the room here? What's your number one piece of advice? I'm going to ask everyone that question. John, you, because you got to go last, you now to get to go first. <laughs> and then uh, we're going to wrap it up from there. So, John, top piece of advice? Uh, I would say really come to us with a very compelling business case. Understand the business well enough, not just to say, there's a trillion dollar cost in this area in the, in the world, and it's gonna save you half of whatever it is it's, it's costing you. Come in and really explain to us how you, you've gone in and you understand our business and build a, bit, a, a case before you come to us. Don't ask us to do your work. And we see Perfect. that just way too often today. Perfect. Addison, what, are you gonna, what have you got for us? Yeah, I'd probably to, to riff off of that is, um, specifically given the businesses that we all have, you know, for instance, when you come to the payer, you're looking for us to, for instance, figure out how to reimburse, you know, so that you can kind of pay, get paid for what you're bringing. And, you know, again, to the point of doing your homework, researching, 
and think about how this is going to fit into a system of innovation, not just, um, you know, kind of this shiny object that's sitting all over to the side that we, we're not really, it's not going to be easy to integrate into anything that we're doing. So bringing those views as to how this fits into the system of the business process that yep. we actually have to support. Perfect. That's good. Juanjo? So be, be very clear on what you want to achieve. What are the outcomes that you are pursuing? And then be relentless in pursuing them. But then don't be too relentless and fail very quickly and realize that you should stop once you Love once things are not working. Love it. I think Amy? for the startups that we work with, I would say be willing to say no to us more often because I feel like the sales cycle Love goes it. on yeah. too long yeah. mm -hmm. and you need to be able to the say slow no, no or walk slow away. No. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Nancy, last but not least. For me, it's going to be that we need to embrace innovation and we need to be comfortable to fail and fail fast and know it's okay. Right. And learn from those innovations because you might not fail all the way. Pick it back up and push it forward and get it 75%. Fail it again until it's done. And, and don't be afraid and stand up for yourselves and, and let this industry know Fail fast, fail early, it's okay. We do it every day. We bring drugs to market and we don't bring them. So mm -hmm. we, I think we gotta eat our own dog food because that's what we do. We make drugs and we do fail fast all day long in discovery. Perfect it's way the to same finish. thing. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Wano. Thank you, Addison. Thank you, John. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for a great panel. Thank you very much.